Well, I heard a story about a man who took a trip to Israel with his wife and his very difficult and ever-nagging mother-in-law. And uh, while they were in Israel, uh, very sadly, uh, the mother-in-law passed away. And so the man went to an undertaker to uh, determine what to do with the body. And the, un- the undertaker said, well, you basically have two options. Uh, for $5,000, you could have the body shipped back to the U.S., but for only $150, you could have the body buried right here in Israel, right here in the Holy Land. And the man thought for a little bit, and he said, you know what? Um, I think I'll have her uh, shipped back to the U.S. And the undertaker said, sir, did you hear me? I said, for only $150, you could have her buried here in Israel. And the man responded, a long time ago, a man was buried here. And three days later, he rose again from the dead. I can't take that chance. (laughs) It turns out that not everyone is comforted by the news of the resurrection. And what's so interesting is when you look at the passage that we read this morning, uh, the people that first encountered the resurrection of Jesus were anything but comforted by it. And so you have the women who, when they saw the empty tomb and they heard the angel talk to them, they fled, and they were terrified and trembling. Uh, It it seized them with astonishment. And then the the disciples, when they heard the news, they they were filled with disbelief. And so the early Christians, they were staggered, they were astonished, they were even terrified by the news of the resurrection. And I want to ask, what about us? You know, I think a lot of times, although they were terrified and astonished, so many of us are comfortable with the resurrection. And the point I want to make this morning is that as long as we are not astonished, as long as we're not staggered and just blown away by the resurrection, it's not going to really change us. As long as we are comfortable with Easter, Easter is never going to radically change our lives. So uh, this morning, uh, here's what I want to do. I want to help us become uh, terrified. I want to help us be astonished. I want to help us kind of bring, uh, go back to the original disciples and the women here and be astonished by the resurrection so that we could be changed by it. And I want to do that by looking at the story through three different angles. And so number one, uh, we're going to be astonished when we, number one, see the resurrection as an earth-shattering historical event. Second of all, we need to also see it as a terrifying cosmic claim. And then finally, as a wonderful personal hope. Okay, so three things. Uh, the resurrection as historical event, as cosmic claim, and then finally, as personal hope. We'll go through uh, each one of these things, and hopefully we'll be astonished just like they were. And so first, uh, the resurrection as a historical event. Let's just read uh, uh, chapter 16, the first few verses again. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome uh, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll roll away the stone for us from the the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right hand, dressed in a white robe. They were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And we'll stop there. 
You know, Easter is about a lot of things. It's about hope, it's about new life, it's about lilies and dresses. But first and foremost, Easter is about an actual historical event in human history. And it's important to see that because many people look at the the story that we just read and they say, you know, it's a legend. Uh, This didn't literally happen. It was, it was made up by the earliest Christians, you know, to, to teach us higher truths, metaphorical truths, you know, that spring comes after the winter, that joy always comes in the morning. And I remember uh, there is a scholar named John Dominic Crossan who said this. He said, uh, picturing this view, he said, the resurrection never happened. The resurrection always happens. So it's not literal. It's metaphorical, meant to teach us higher truths. When you read this story, one thing you can be for certain is that this is not Mark's view. Uh, Mark wants us to believe that this story that he's telling actually happened. And when you read it, it reads like historical narrative. Uh, It's got all the marks of historical prose. Mark is mentioning details. Uh, Mark is naming places and names and just giving us these little, uh, you know, seemingly irrelevant details. This has marks of historical narrative. You know, legends begin with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, or once upon a time. Mark does not read like that. What Mark wants us to see here is that the resurrection actually, historically, literally happened. But someone might ask, why should I believe Mark? Uh, Why should I believe that Mark is telling me the truth? How do I know that Mark is not fabricating this and giving me a legend? Well, I think that Mark, uh, the story here is actually very believable as history, and I want to give you a few reasons why. Uh, first of all, this, this story strikes me as historical because look and see who were the first eyewitnesses. And we see them here in verse 1. The first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And the thing that all these people had in common is all three of them were women. Now, in this day and age, uh, women had very low status. Uh, It was what we might call misogynistic culture. It was a patriarchal society. And uh, women women had very low status, like I said. And in both Jewish and Roman jurisprudence, uh, the testimony of women were not allowed in any court of law. Their evidence was not admissible. What that means is if you committed a crime and, a, and, you know, 50 women saw you do it, in that culture, it did not matter. It would be dismissed. Their evidence was not admissible. I know it's terrible, but, but in this day, this is the way it was. But notice here, Mark has women as the first ones giving testimony to the resurrection. And uh, one early opponent of Christianity, his name was Celsus. He was a second century uh, Greek philosopher. He was the first one to uh, write an intellectual argument against Christianity. And one of his main lines of argument is that we could never believe in the resurrection because the first eyewitnesses were women, he said. And he said, of course we know that women are hysterical. And everybody said, oh, it's a problem. It's a real big problem. If Mark was fabricating this account, the last people he would have put as the first eyewitnesses would have been women. It would have uh, discredited him to the very people he was trying to convince it would have made his, his uh, story unbelievable in that day and age. The only reason why Mark has women as the first eyewitnesses is because they were. Another reason why I think this is a, a very believable account is because notice that, that Mark documents the disciples' disbelief. He documents their disbelief. And uh, as you read the story here, the thing that sticks out like a sore thumb is that nobody expected the resurrection to happen. 
here are these women, they're on their way to the tomb, they've got their spices, they've got their perfume, and they're going to do what? To anoint a dead body. And even though throughout his life, Jesus said over and over again, I'm gonna die, on the third day I'm gonna rise. I'm gonna die, on the third day I'm gonna rise. I'm gonna die, on the third day I'm, the, I'm gonna rise. You know, Mark has nobody just sitting around saying, hmm, it's the third day. Maybe we ought to go check it out, it couldn't hurt. Nobody is there doing that. They're coming to anoint a dead body. And when the women find the empty tomb, their first thought isn't resurrection. They run away, and what do they say? The body was stolen. And then they tell the first apostles, and the apostles look at the women, and they say, this is nonsense. Because why? It's because they're just like us. They know just like we do that dead people stay dead. It's important to realize this because a lot of times we suffer from what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We say, look, we're modern people, and of course we're post-enlightenment. They were gullible back then. they They were credulous back then about things like resurrection and miracles, but we just don't believe that anymore. No, it was just as unbelievable to them as it is for us. And they went away saying, yes, I know it sounds crazy. Of course you don't believe us. We didn't believe it either, but we're telling you what we saw. The tomb was empty. Jesus rose from the dead. But notice Mark documents their disbelief. And now, if you want to fabricate a story, you don't write a story like this. You don't write yourself in the narrative of, as, of, uh, like people who had no faith. And when you look at the, the account here, uh, uh, you, know, you look all the way through, and what, when Jesus is arrested, they all disip- the disciples all disappear into the darkness. And then you've got Peter standing before the fire when, after Jesus was arrested. A middle school girl comes and says, do you know him? And he denies the Lord with cursing and swearing. Nobody believes it. And if you want to create a narrative where uh, you're keeping the dream alive and you're consolidating your power and you you're want to come out as heroes, you don't write yourself into the narrative as people have, uh, who had no faith. You know, if you want to make a powerful narrative like that, what do you do? You write a narrative like this. You know, on the third day, we, his disciples, we showed up to the tomb, and we brought a band, and we had a prayer vigil, and we had a choir, and when the sun peeked over the the mountains, we counted down 10, 9, 8, 7. But no, this is not the way the story went. In every single uh, account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have the disciples as disbelieving, bewildered, and terrified. Do you want to know why? They were disbelieving, bewildered, and terrified. This is how it happened. And it just doesn't seem like a story that's been fabricated. You wouldn't write a story like this if you wanted to consolidate your power. Another thing I want you to notice about the narrative is look at all the names. Uh, You've got the names of the three women that are mentioned over and over again. You've got uh, Cleopas later on in chapter 16. You've got uh, Joseph of, of Arimathea, and it's important to know this because, uh, as, as Richard Bauckham said, he's a historian, he said that the names in the narrative are like footnotes. They're like citations. And what this means is that, you know, a lot of people think these, these uh, stories were written, you know, hundreds or at least a hundred years after the fact, and And of course, there was a long time for legends to develop and all the eyewitnesses had died away so you could make things up without somebody saying it's not true. But notice uh, the the book of Mark, um, it it was the first account ever written. It was written around 60 AD. 
That was 30 years after the event. And what that means is that the eyewitnesses were still alive. And it's almost as if Mark puts the names in there to say, look, this is the way it happened. If you don't believe me, go ask them. They'll tell you what they saw. And so this rings as history. This this sounds like a, a story that hasn't been fabricated. And a couple more pieces of evidence that Mark includes here. Number one, uh, he includes the empty tomb. And number two, he includes the eyewitnesses. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses were as established a fact as any historical event could be. And then uh, Wolfhard Pannenberg, who's a German scholar, and German scholars are typically not conservative, and uh, Pannenberg really isn't very conservative himself, but this is what he says about the resurrection. He says, the early Christians could not possibly preach the resurrection publicly and successfully unless both the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses existed. In other words, if you wanted to stop the early Christian movement, and there was a lot of people who wanted to stop the early Christian movement, all you had to do was produce the body. But nobody produced the body because there wasn't one. Jesus had physically and bodily risen from the dead. And then N.T. Wright goes on and he says, if there was only an empty tomb and no eyewitnesses, people would have said the body is stolen. If there was only sightings and no empty tomb, everybody would have said they were hallucinating. Only if all of these were true could Christianity ever possibly have begun. So this is a historical case of the resurrection. And I give it out not because, uh, you know, it eliminates any doubt, but because there are a lot of us that doubt. And there's a lot of us who are skeptical. And I want to encourage you, you know, skepticism is not all bad. Because, you know, Christianity encourages us to think. It gives us evidence and says, look, an inherited belief is a weak belief. And as Tim Keller said, a a faith without any doubts is like a body without antibodies in it. Some doubt is healthy because it leads you to examine the evidence, evidence which so often strengthens your faith. So have you thought about it? Have you examined the evidence for the historical claim of the resurrection? It's the first point. The resurrection is a bold, inconvenient, historical event. But second of all, the resurrection is a cosmic claim. Now notice here, Mark just doesn't want us to say, oh, this is historical, wow, so interesting, let's think about it. He wants to bring us to to this point where we realize that that the resurrection of Jesus is actually a cosmic claim. Because notice what happens when the women go to the tomb. They go to the tomb, Jesus is not there, there's a man who, who's in the, in, the, in the cave there, and what does he say? Jesus is not here, he is risen. And then he, then he includes, just as he said. The angel is saying, Jesus claimed he would do this. Jesus said over and over again that he was the Messiah. And this resurrection punctuates his claim. And you know, the, the disciples were learning about Jesus' Jesus's identity all of their lives. They spent three years with him. And uh, after, you know, all the way through, they're asking themselves, who is this man? And so when Jesus walked on water, they said, who is this man who the wind and the waves obey him? And when Jesus cast out demons, they asked themselves, who is this man who even the spirit world obeys his commands? And when he healed the sick, who is this man who's got power over illness? And now as they stood at the empty tomb, 
they ask themselves, who is this man who conquered death and the grave? And as they thought about it, the only conclusion they could draw is that he was the Lord, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he was the creator God in the world who had risen from the dead. And right after Easter, as they encountered the risen Lord, the first thing that these disciples did was they fell at the feet of the risen Jesus and they worshiped him. Here's the point I want to make here. The resurrection is not just an interesting historical event. It is a cosmic claim that forces our hand. It's a cosmic claim that pushes us into a decision. When you realize that Jesus is the Lord of history, he's conquered sin and death, your only choice is to fall at his feet and worship him or to walk away completely. Jesus never simply claimed to be a good teacher. He always said, I am the Lord, I am the Messiah, and here the resurrection proves that to be so. And every time the resurrection was preached uh, by the early apostles, people always realized this. And so there's a story where uh, Paul the Apostle, he was uh, in, the, in the Greek world, uh, he was in Greece, and he was preaching at the Areopagus, which is a mountain where Greek philosophers would gather, and, and they would discuss the latest ideas. And so, so Paul goes among all these erudite philosophers, and he begins to preach to them Jesus. And uh, Paul was just very sophisticated, and, and they loved what Paul was saying as he talked about the search for truth and the unknown God, and they were very, very intrigued by what Paul was saying until Paul brought up the resurrection because it pushed him into a decision. And notice what Paul says here. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. And the philosopher said, discussion over, you can go home now. Because Paul was saying the search is over. The time of decision is now. You can't be neutral about this Jesus. You either fall at his feet and say, command me, or you walk away. And this is what the res resurrection does for us. And Easter is a perfect time to ask yourself the question, am I on the fence? Am I neutral about Jesus? Or have I come to him and said, you are my Lord, you are my God, you're the Lord of history. Because Jesus made a claim that no other religious leader claims. You know, all the other religious leaders uh, gave us clues to life or pointed the way to life, but only Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I am the life to which all the clues point. And I, I hold the keys to death and the grave. And the only proper response to me is to give your life to me. Have you done that? So Easter is a historical event. But it, but it shows us that it's not just an event. It's a, it's a cosmic claim, in some ways a terrifying claim. Jesus Christ is our Lord. He's the creator God. And he demands our allegiance. Have you given your life to him? But then finally, uh, Easter is not only a historical event, a cosmic claim. Easter is finally a wonderful personal hope. Because you might be here, maybe you're saying, I am terrified to give my life to Jesus. That does kind of make me nervous to, for, to hear you say, my life is not my own. 
that I've been bought with the price that he, de- that he demands my allegiance? Why should I do this? Why should I give my life to the risen Lord? It's because what he offers you. He says, come to me, I'm your Lord, and I want to give you a wonderful, amazing personal hope. Which is what he gives to the disciples here in the passage. <clears throat> Notice in verse seven, uh, he says, uh, the angel says, go. Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you he would. And so they ran off and they told the disciples. Now I want you to see what a beautiful, hopeful message uh, the risen Jesus gives to his disciples. And it's so gracious when you realize what the disciples had done to him. You know, these are the, the disciples who disappeared into the darkness. Uh, These are the the disciples who abandoned him in his darkest hour. And it's so amazing that Jesus says, look, I'm alive, I'm the risen Lord, and I want to meet with you. Let's go back to our old stomping grounds in Galilee, and we'll get together again. What a gracious word, especially when you consider what Jesus didn't say. You know, Jesus could have said, you tell those faithless, backstabbing cowards that I might see them if they grovel. And I just might reinstate them into my movement. Maybe. No, Jesus says, I want to meet with you. I'm alive again from the dead. And I want, I want to see you again. Now notice he singles out Peter. They say, tell the disciples and Peter. Why did they single out Peter? Well, it's because Peter, you remember, was the one who failed the most. I mean, he was the one who denied the Lord with cursing and swearing in front of the middle school girl. And get, in your, get into the mind of Peter. Imagine what he felt at this moment. You know, he was probably hopeless. He was probably living a nightmare. You know, and he was thinking, you know, I thought Jesus was the Messiah, but now he's gone. And I thought I could do this thing. I thought I could be faithful. I thought I could follow him, but I've failed. And what does Jesus want to do with me anyway? I may as well go go fishing, and that's exactly what Peter did. Forget it. It's over. It was a pipe dream. I'm worthless. What does Jesus want to do with me? And maybe some of you feel like that this morning. But notice Jesus says, tell the disciples and Peter. Tell Peter that I still love him. Tell Peter that he still has a future. Tell Peter that it's not the end. There's still hope. Now, the other accounts of the resurrection, right after Peter hears the news, you know what he does? He jumps up and he runs like lightning to the tomb. And he clamors in there just to see with his own eyes to make sure this is actually real. Because Peter had been living a nightmare. And this almost seems too good to be true. I wonder if you've ever had a a nightmare, and maybe it's one of those nightmares where your spouse has died. Anybody ever have one of those horrible dreams? And you wake up, what's the first thing you do? You reach over and touch their flesh and blood. Okay, it's just a dream, they're still there. Or maybe it's your kids that have died in your nightmare and you wake up and you clamor to the kids' room and you touch their flesh and bone just to make sure it was just a dream. And Peter has been living a nightmare. And he runs to that tomb and when he sees it empty, everything in his life has changed. He was born again to a living hope, later on he says. Because when Jesus rose again from the dead, it gave Peter a future. 
because he realized three things, and I'm gonna give them to you real quick, then we'll be done. He, num- he realized, number one, that death is not the end. The tomb is empty, and that means if you've lost a child or you've lost a parent, resurrection, you're gonna see your loved ones again. Death is not the end. Physically, bodily, you're gonna see your loved ones in a new creation, in brand new bodies. He also realized in that moment that failure is not final. Because Jesus rose from the dead, Peter's failure was not the final word in his life. Resurrection was the final word in his life. And it didn't matter what he had done. Christianity is not about cleaning up the old you, but, getting, but about death and resurrection. Dying to the old life and receiving brand new power, brand new life to live into the future. Loving God and pleasing him. But he finally realized also that he could meet Jesus. Jesus says, I want to meet with you. And Jesus says the same thing this morning. You see, Jesus Christ is alive. He is risen from the dead. And he is here this morning by his Holy Spirit. And he says, here is the message of the resurrection. You could meet the living God through the resurrected Lord. He's not a dead savior. We're not just looking back on the history books. Jesus Christ is alive and you could pray to him and you could know him and you could walk with him. You could meet Jesus. Now I want you to imagine that uh, you got a letter in the mail. I'm almost done. You got a letter in the mail and it was from maybe a law firm and it was on, you know, law firm stationery and it looked very official. And on the letter it said that a relative of yours had died. You'd never met them before. You'd never heard of them before and they left you millions of dollars. I bet you, you would be very skeptical of that. But I bet you'd look into it. What could it hurt? Why would you do that? Because the, the offer is so big, it's so huge. And this is the resurrection. You might be skeptical. But listen, the offer is way too big not to look into it. If Jesus rose from the dead, death is not the end, failure is not final, and you could meet with Jesus. The offer is way too big not to at least just look into it and examine the evidence. And so as you walked in the the door uh, today, you you were given a bulletin, and uh, on the bulletin there's a tear-off little thingy. Um, (laughs) And uh, if if you'd like to talk to me about the resurrection a little bit more, maybe you're here and you're skeptical and you want to dialogue and maybe just examine more of the evidence. I would love to talk to you. And uh, you could write, you know, I'd like to talk to somebody on that little piece of paper that you received. Put it in the offering box or give it to somebody at the Welcome Center. I would love to discuss this with you if you are interested in hearing more about the risen Lord. And for the rest of us, let's just celebrate today that Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 2,000 years ago, historically, bodily, uh, you broke into human history and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you raised Jesus' physical body. And God, what that means is that death is not the end. God, that all of our failure, all all of the things that we have done that we think disqualify us, God, that is not the final word. Resurrection, resurrection is the final word. And Father, I pray that we would meet with you, God, that we would know you. 
that we would know you, the living God, through the resurrection power of Jesus. God, we thank you for this wonderful news of Easter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.